Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we read verses 17 through 34. Hear now the word of God. But in, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have... Houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I I admit that I continue to feel ill-equipped to open these truths to your people today. It's hard to know what to say and what not to say on so rich a subject in such a short period of time. And so would you first and foremost help me, but would you also help your people, help them, help us to follow the scriptures closely, help your people to love you and love your word such that they would be like Bereans, that they would ask themselves if these things are so, that they would ask you if these things are so. Would you give us that kind of discernment today and grant us your Holy Spirit? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, We've reached the end of this series on the sacraments. Um, last week, uh, we asked the question, what is the Lord's Supper? And this week, we're going to ask a predictable question, who is the Lord's Supper for? We asked the same thing of baptism a few weeks ago. And we, of course, need to ask that question from Scripture. It's no good to just simply ask everybody, what do they think? 
All right, that's not the right way for us to answer these questions. Instead, we go to the Lord. We ask God, what have you said? And so when Jesus administers the supper in the upper room, he does ask things of the participants that gives the beginnings of an answer. However, I think today's reading from 1 Corinthians gives us a very rich place from which to draw an even fuller answer. Not only do we get the words of institution from Jesus, but we also have these stern instructions from Paul. In fact, you may have noticed the tone of voice in which I read this passage was a little different than when I usually administer the supper. Oftentimes I administer the supper and I use welcoming tones. Uh, I I try to implore you to, to love these things and see the beauty of these things. And yet Paul actually writes this passage in a situation where he's just been sarcastic with them, right? He, he's just used sarcasm, which I don't think pastors generally should do. Paul, Paul's allowed to. Paul, I'm not going to criticize him. Uh, but generally speaking, sarcasm tends to put people on edge. And right before he gives the words of institution, what does he do? Oh, we need to know who's genuine among you, right? We need to, he's being sarcastic with these people. So this is a hard passage, actually, and it's actually a negative context. That's generally what 1 Corinthians is like. It's certainly the case today. And so for us to understand this passage, we need to understand what's going on. Paul has written this letter to a troubled church. It's a church with divisions in it. It's a church that is rife with immaturity. It's a church that is filled with infighting. It is a church that has been guilty of calling good evil and evil good. Uh, It's a church that has been bragging about its toleration of sexual immorality in the way in which the people of Corinth, um, and part of what Paul has to confront is the way the people of Corinth are observing the Lord's Supper. It's just another symptom of all of the sickness that's in this church. What are they doing? What's going on here, especially when it comes to the Lord's Supper? You know, I think the five verses uh, of our, or, or the verses of our reading spell out the situation very well. Look what, look at what it says again. I'm actually going to just emit, omit, omit some of this from the first five verses, but just look at this. He basically says this: When you come together in the first place, I hear that there are divisions among you, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And so he goes on to tell them that if that's what they want to do, if they want to have this kind of meal, they could just go home. They could just go have a typical meal at home if that's what they're seeking. And that seems to be what they're practicing when they're having the Lord's Supper at church. The Lord's Supper, Paul is saying, is supposed to be different from that. It's not a typical meal. Um, the Lord's Supper is it's distinct from a private meal at home. Um, it's even not supposed to be the same thing as a church potluck. I think there's, there's, been, there's a very popular strain of interpretation of the events of the early church that, that everybody basically came together and had a church potluck fellowship meal, and that's what the Lord's Supper was. And yet Paul is actually faulting the Corinthians for practicing that. They're actually doing it that way, and Paul is saying, that's not the Lord's Supper. That's not the Lord's Supper. So, you know, we have a fellowship meal next Sunday. We didn't make any of the announcements. We didn't say it out loud. But next Sunday, we're having a church fellowship meal. When we do that and we all go through the line and we get our food and we go and sit down, that's not the Lord's Supper. Um, it looks like the Corinthians are doing something like that, though. They're, they're coming together. They're having this meal. And we'll talk more about this 
um, in just a moment. But the meal that he's talking about here, he's, he's saying is different from a meal that's meant to fill you up. It's, meant, it's not supposed to be the kind of meal where you fill up, you get satisfied, you pat your belly, and then you have a drink of wine afterwards. Um, he actually says, that's what you do at home. The thing we're doing together when we gather as a church is different. He's pushing them more towards, I think, what you might call a ceremonial observation. He's saying, you guys all need to eat at the same time. You need to drink at the same time. That's not the way that people normally have meals. Um, But you have even more problems going on here, and they have something to do with really divisions in the church along economic lines. Um, Here's how Doug Moo summarizes what's going on in Corinthians. He's a commentator on Corinthians. He says, Wealthier Corinthians were eating their own private meals before less well-to-do believers arrived to eat their own meals, consisting of less food, of lower quality, and consumed in a more modest space. And so basically people are splitting off. They're going to different areas. They're not even having it together collectively. Um, And so there seems to be, in fact, I I was looking at a lot of commentators, and they seem to to be agreed on this. There's a rich-poor division going on in, in Corinth. So the Lord's Supper ends up being a place not where the unity of the body is built up, but it ends up being this place of disunity where the, body, where the body's uh, divisions are on full display. Um, they're eating the supper more like an ordinary meal where there's a cool kid's table, and then there's the table for everybody else. And, and maybe the, the cool kid's table, everybody's got enough food, but by the time everybody else has gotten something to eat, then they don't have anything, and it's maybe not as nice. And Certainly not as much wine, maybe no table at all. And you may say to yourself, huh, that doesn't sound very much like the Lord's Supper to me. That sounds like a badly run church fellowship meal that not everyone's invited to. And you'd be right, right? The observance that they're having, it's not actually the Lord's Supper at all. They're calling it that. They think it's that. And Paul's like, you guys need to know what the Lord's Supper is. That's why he gives them the words of institution here. Um. These ordinary meals separated from each other, divided from each other, are nothing like the Lord's Supper that Jesus set out. This is a solemn meal that everyone's supposed to take together. And Paul lays this charge to the Corinthians. He says, by their behavior, they were profaning holy things. They weren't regarding God as holy. The unity of the church is broken. They're selfish. They're sectarian. They're divided. And so Paul establishes the difference between this meal that they're having and the actual Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted uh, by reminding them the Lord's Supper is not an ordinary meal at all. He shows them this by, by giving them the words of institution that we're all so familiar with by now. Um, Paul's solution to their not observing the supper and having divisions among them was to go back to basics and remind them of what Jesus said the meal is and how it's to be done. And he especially wants to go deeper than just their practice. Paul is actually aiming at the heart here, not just the surface level presenting symptoms with their observance. Because, and you see this with Paul, you see it with Jesus, right? Jesus is never content to just say, uh, stop, stop committing adultery. What does Jesus do? He goes to the deeper level, the lust of the heart. Um, Paul doesn't just say, you know what? Everybody just eat your meal at the same time. Just eat the meal at the same time. Everybody do it. Do it like a ceremony. Do it Do it the right way and just stop doing it the other way. Instead, he goes to the heart, right? 
Paul is very invested in. If you don't deal with the heart, all this stuff just resurfaces somewhere else. It just resurfaces in some other way. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. Um, you need to kill that mole. You know, don't just push him back down into his hole. Um, and this section of Paul's letter that we read this morning begins with his, his criticism. Harsh words. More harsh words. If you had been at the church in Corinth and you had gotten the letter of 1 Corinthians, you know, it would have been like getting beaten up and then getting beaten up again and then just getting beaten up again. Um, at least it would feel that way, especially if you were defensive about the stuff going on and you really thought everything was fine. That, that, it, would, it would come like that. So what does he do? He says, look, let's talk about your attitude around the Lord's Supper. And then he goes to the gravity of the supper. He, he wants to hit them with the importance of the supper. Stop treating this meal like it's this light thing, like it's this, like it's this silly thing. He's not telling them not to be joyful, but they've turned it into bacchanalia. They've turned it into a party. Um, they've got wine in the supper. Some people are really excited about wine in the supper at Corinth. Um, and he's saying, cool your horses. Um, the way that they're participating risks the anger and judgment of God. He loves them too much to not care. And he loves them too much to not say anything. So we're going to be drawing a great deal on this passage today. And, and so we're going to ask the question, who's the Lord's Supper for? What does God expect of us when we participate in the Lord's Supper? And so the question isn't just who is qualified to participate in the supper, but the bigger question is, how can we practice it rightly? How can we do it rightly? How does God expect us to approach the table? What is God's bigger plan when it comes to the Lord's Supper? And I think the basics of these questions are answered in this passage. And the answer is found under three different headings, each of which is going to help us understand who the Lord's Supper is for. First, the Lord's Supper is for those who remember. Second, the Lord's Supper is for those who examine themselves. And third, it is for those who come together. It's for those who remember, those who examine themselves, and those who come together. So first, Paul says the Lord's Supper is for those who remember. Um, you know, Paul takes us to Jesus' words once again, where we, Jesus took the cup, he took the bread and he broke it. He took the cup and said, do this in remembrance of me. Uh, I leaned on that last week. We talked already about the need for us to remember. Um, but it, it seems like Paul, to Paul, the people aren't remembering Christ. Right? This is why they need to hear this again. They're not remembering Christ. They're not remembering his death when they observe what they think is the supper. They're remembering themselves, which we are experts at. We are all experts at thinking of ourselves, remembering ourselves. We each live in our own heads. Uh, there, nobody has to tell us to think about ourselves. There's no biblical passage that says, you know, make sure you really think about yourself today. Just <laughs> no need for that. Um, usually we get biblical commands for things that we have trouble with, things that, we're, that we slack, out, slack off on. There's, there's no slacking in that. We're, we're experts at that. But the, Jesus' own words, though, they're a corrective to that, right? So instead of remembering... They're simply sitting down and eating an, an otherwise ordinary meal and they, they think they're being obedient to Jesus and they tell themselves they're being obedient to Jesus. And Paul says, no, this meal is a time to remember. This is a meal with content. This is a meal with meaning. It's not just a sentimental practice meant to evoke a feeling. 
It is meant to evoke thoughts and ideas and, yes, memories. We are meant to remember Christ's body broken. We're we're meant to remember Christ's blood spilled. And so in this sense, the Lord's Supper is, it's different from baptism. You know, I mentioned, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that unlike the Lord's Supper, you never see the apostles exhorting people when they get baptized um, that, that they need to consider what it means when they're being baptized. There are, there are texts explaining baptism. There are no texts warning people of being baptized apart from faith like there is with the supper. Um, there's no instruction for someone to remember anything when they're baptized, actually. Paul here warns, though, of participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. There's, no, there's nothing like that when it comes to baptism. There are no warnings about participating in baptism in an unworthy manner. Isn't that interesting? We so psychologize sometimes. Baptism. I need to be in the right space. I need to be in the right frame of mind. I need to make sure that I'm converted right before I can get baptized. And we we think that way. And actually, I I think we're thinking about the Lord's Supper and our own attitude towards the Lord's Supper when when we think of baptism oftentimes. There's no warning for the person being baptized to discern what is happening in baptism or discern the water or examine himself in baptism like there is with the Lord's Supper. I think this is primarily because baptism is about God doing something to you, not you actively participating in something like the Lord's Supper is. In baptism, what happens? The baptized person passively receives. In the Supper, we're active, we're thoughtful, we're discerning, we're remembering. The, the Reformed commentators said that the participating in the supper, the person participating in the supper must be capable of remembering what Jesus wanted them to remember. Um, if somebody will not remember or cannot yet remember, they're not going to be able to obey Jesus' words of institution. They're not going to be able to obey what Paul says here. You know, it's hard to be obedient to Jesus if we will not or cannot remember Christ. Maybe we, we don't have the, the capacity to remember. Um, this can be a sensitive issue when it comes to the issue, of especially it seems like in Presbyterian circles, the issue of small children who have not yet, they not yet publicly professed faith in Christ. They're, they're covenant children. Um, they've, they've, you know, they've been baptized. They're part of the, of the visible church. They're part of the covenant church. They're covenant members. But they haven't made that profession of faith in Christ yet. They haven't been made communing members of the church yet. They're members, but not communing members. Um, or when it comes to the issue of those with a, a profound disability where they can't even express a profession of faith in some kind of credible way. Um, I actually am, am absolutely excited when a child professes faith in, in Christ. And so what I don't want to be misunderstood as suggesting that children should not come to the session with their parents in order to profess their faith in Christ. But there are many um, parents who want their children to receive the supper and receive it extremely early, even when they can't even express words yet. Sometimes there are parents that think, I, I've got to get this in their, in their mouths, right? Um, some want to get the, the bread in the mouths uh, as infants because they see some sort of benefit. They hope there's, there's a benefit in it. And, and yet we saw the Lord's Supper is not like baptism. Uh, unlike baptism, Paul believes that those participating should be capable of remembering. Uh, they should be capable in some way of, 
self-reflection, examining themselves, thinking about what they're doing. He, he, he assumes that. And, and in that sense, infants simply aren't capable of observe, observing the Lord's Supper. Um, our church doesn't set an age. We don't know the age which somebody is, is able to. Uh, but it is important that somebody be able to express that faith. They need to be able to come to the elders and say, I trust in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Um, I find this helpful. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, has his own commentary on it. And he makes this comment. He says this. He says, they are to be admitted to the Lord's Supper by the church who are of a proper age to examine themselves and to commemorate the Lord's death according to the command the infant children of the church are therefore not admitted to the use of the Lord's Supper, even though they are included among the number of the faithful. And I would be very, very uh, explicit in lay, leaning on that and making sure that is understood, that not participating in the Lord's Supper does not mean you're not a covenant member. It just simply means that there is one benefit of, of the covenant that you that child does not yet have access to. So... My plan is not to give more attention to this issue. I, I just simply want to, uh, uh, every now and then, I think the issue of children receiving communion has not really been a live issue in our church, so I don't see myself giving a whole sermon on it. But I will say this. When I was preparing, this sermon was like 20 minutes longer. And so there probably will be a podcast episode in the future that you can listen to. And if you are just loving this issue, then we'll talk more about it. And if you have questions, email them to podcast at evergreenpca.com. <laughs> just like to throw a little, little advertisement in there. But I, I want to read a, a quote from Herman Bovink. I find him very helpful on every issue. He's especially helpful here. Especially if you think there might be something harmful about waiting. If you think, you know, leaving my child out, them not receiving the Lord's Supper yet. I think there's something, there's something they're missing out on. There's something harmful here. If, if he doesn't get it or she doesn't get it, what's going to happen to them? And, and Bavink says this. He says, withholding of the supper from children deprives them of not one benefit of the covenant of grace. This would indeed be the case if they were denied baptism. One who does this must suppose that the children stand outside the covenant of grace, but it is otherwise with the Lord's Supper. Whoever administers baptism and not the Lord's Supper to children acknowledges that they are in the covenant and share all the they are in the covenant and share all the benefits of it. He merely denies to them a special way in which those same benefits are signified and sealed when that does not suit their age. The supper does not convey any benefits that are not already given in the word and in baptism through faith. So I find, I find that helpful. It's a, a word of encouragement there, especially if you think that your child's being deprived of something. I would say, no, they're, they're not. Um, and there will come a day, Lord willing, when they will exercise that. Um, one of the reformers said it another way. He said, in the Lord's Supper, we receive Christ in a different way, but we don't receive a different Christ than we receive by faith. And I think that's really good. Um, this is a meal where the participants are meant, they're meant to remember it's in the eating and the drinking that we remember. It's a sensory experience that brings to mind things that we are meant to recall. We're meant to recall his death. The elements of bread and wine themselves, they do have an intentional role to play in helping us remember. But it is in the remembering that our experience of the supper is imbued with meaning and content. That way it's, it's not simply just an act of eating and drinking, but it actually has meaning. 
And this is part of the reason why the why preaching of the word is so integral to the Lord's Supper. Uh, if we simply eat and drink wine, but we end up preaching of the word, uh, this meal risks becoming a superstition. But that also means that if we eat and drink and don't know what we're doing or don't remember why we're here, the meal also becomes a superstition. So the Lord's Supper, Paul says, is for those who remember. Second, the Lord's Supper is for those who examine themselves. Uh, Look at what Paul says beginning in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. I want to make three observations on this subject when it comes to self-examination. The first is this. The supper is available to believers who have demonstrated the capacity to examine themselves and discern the body and blood of Christ. Um, Those who participate in the Lord's Supper are all assumed to understand the gospel. They're they're assumed to understand their own sin. They've confessed their sin, and they've confessed their need of Jesus' grace. Uh, They have some sense of what they're doing. They they know why they're doing it. They they remember Jesus. They examine themselves. Do they exhaustively know these things? No, no, none of us does. None of us exhaustively knows Christ. None of us exhaustively knows the things of God. Uh, But we want them to at least have a sense of what is going on, some capacity for self-examination. Um, and this is worth pausing just a bit longer. We have a responsibility to examine ourselves. We have a responsibility to examine ourselves. And we're going to see this in the next point. There, there's even a place for the elders of the church to be involved in the fencing of the table and even barring people from the table on hopefully very rare occasions. Um, but remember this, elders aren't omniscient. We cannot know the heart. We can't know all the things that you're wrestling with in your heart if you don't share them with us. Um, we can't look at any of you and just know for a fact that you don't love the Lord Jesus or that you uh, aren't discerning the body and blood of the Lord. And what this means then is this, each believer is also a responsible party when it comes to self-examination. You're meant to examine yourself. Because the elders of the church cannot search your own heart, right? You're the first person who's able to do that. Paul, uh, or uh, the psalmist calls out to God, search me and try me. Search my thoughts and know me, O God. Um, It's actually in self-examination, we're really asking God to examine us. I think Paul is thinking of the psalm there when he says that. And in in Paul's context here in our passage, there's just this incredibly selfish behavior taking place around the supper Uh, These are people who need this stern warning, right? If you won't examine yourself, you may be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What a stern thing to say. What a a hard thing to say. He seems to be suggesting in this case that their behaviors are are, are coming from a heart that has either forgotten or never understood the gospel of Christ in the first place. We're meant to examine ourselves. Part of the way we examine ourselves is by asking the question, may I fall short in, I may fall short in my life, but do I love Christ? I may fall short in my life, but have I repented? Do I, do I treasure the gospel? I may not treasure it as I should, but do I have at least some flavor for Christ? Do I have some taste for Jesus? I'm not examining for sinlessness, by the way. 
We're not. We're not examining for sinlessness. Paul is not calling for that here. The question is, though, do I, do I know what the gospel is? Do I, have, do I have some notion that Christ died for me? As I'm eating this bread, do I, do I think to myself, I needed Christ's body to be broken for me? Do I know that? Do I believe that? We're going to talk more about self-examination in a moment. But for the time being, you know, we should note that Paul says we should examine ourselves and we should be capable of examining ourselves and holding ourselves up to God's standard and asking God to search our own hearts even as we come to the table. Paul is encouraging that. He's telling the Corinthians, you guys need to learn the art of self-examination. Now, the second thing we could say about the Lord's Supper from this passage is that there are occasions when even professing Christians should be barred from the table by the elders of the church. Um, I'm always running up against this assumption as a pastor that the church isn't a real thing in Scripture, that this belief that human beings invented the church. And yet Jesus tells the leaders of the church in Matthew 18, if someone sins and doesn't repent, you should excommunicate them. Um, Jesus believed in the church. He believed in the existence of the church. He believed in establishing a church. And, and he said that the church is responsible for something as serious as excommunication. What does he say in Matthew eighteen eighteen? He says, truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, Paul also has a doctrine of excommunication that he puts in the hands of the church. Uh, he lays this out in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, excommunication is a very unusual, it's very unusual in many modern churches. Part of the reason it's very unusual is because membership is very unusual. Um, more churches than ever have no doctrine of excommunication and they cannot obey Jesus here. They just couldn't obey Jesus here because they don't have a doctrine of church membership and yet Jesus says church leaders have a weighty responsibility over whether someone is treated as a tax collector and a sinner or not. And that's something that he says is invested with his, is vested with his church. So while Paul says we should examine ourselves, it's important for us to remember there are occasions when the elders of the church are right to tell someone that perhaps they shouldn't partake. Um, and by the way, telling someone not to partake is, is, uh, is not necessarily excommunication. Um, that's another, another form of admonition. But it isn't only up to a person's own judgment. It's not. The church is part of this. And here's the reason why. We are experts at self-deception. Um, there may come a time in your life when you are caught up in sin, when you are so deceived by sin that you need someone who isn't you to come in and give you the wake-up call from the Lord. Um, I don't know if you've ever been at that place in your life where you needed someone to come to you and say, you are knee-deep in sin, brother. I'm trying to keep you from getting neck-deep in sin. And have you ever had a friend come to you and pull you out? There are times when sin has so deceived us that we need that voice telling us to change, calling upon us to change. And doing it in light of the gospel. Um, Jesus intentionally makes the church a part of that process because he loves you. Because he loves you. He wants you to be reclaimed. He wants you to be brought to repentance. Now how do we do that in practice? Um, how do we tell somebody they shouldn't receive the Lord's Supper? We sometimes will directly tell somebody. 
as a form of church discipline, we may actually say to somebody, the session may say this, you should not participate in the Lord's Supper. That does happen. It can happen. Uh, hasn't happened since I've been here. But it's a real thing that churches do. And it's a real thing that elders are given the, the responsibility to do. It's a weighty responsibility. It does happen. But here is how it normally happens. We don't bar people from the Lord's table by physically stopping them from partaking. Um, there used to be churches in the, in the Reformed tradition that actually physically did that. There were some churches where they would administer the Lord's Supper, and I'm not advocating this, where the ruling elders of the church would come and stand in front of the table, and they would make a physical barrier in front of the Lord's Supper. Uh, again, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea, but they, they would physically do it. Um, but we don't do that. Instead, uh, we use words. We use words. In fact, you can see the words of our fencing in the bulletin. Uh, we have them today. They're on page nine near the bottom of the page. It's actually what we call the fencing of the table. Yeah, we don't physically create a physical fence of elders here at the front. And yet we do have the words uh, where we fence. And, and I try to always make sure when I administer the supper that I use words. So we use the commands of scripture. We, we fence and we don't fence physically, but with words and warnings. And you may notice that each week we fence the table by saying, if you're a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, you're invited to participate. And uh, if you aren't a member in good standing of a Bible-believing church, and you hear that warning each week, and you still take the supper, you may notice that we don't physically stop you from disobeying. We don't physically grab, grab it out of your hands or, or yank it away. But you should also know that your conscience should be troubled if you intentionally go against the words of warning. Your soul should be troubled if you hear the words of warning and still disregard it. Our warning, we believe as a church, is based on the teachings of Christ, based on the words of Scripture. It's not our invention. It's not our warning. It's actually Jesus. And so we believe that it is Jesus that you disobey if you take the supper without being admitted. We won't physically stop you. We won't grab anything out of your hands, but we will warn you week in and week out from God's word. Um, it is the Lord who will have to speak to your conscience to obey and respect the fencing of the table uh, until you become a member. The elders ministry then, you may notice this, it's ministerial and declarative. It is not a physical ministry. It is ministerial and declarative. That means we take what we're given and we say what we're supposed to say. Um, we don't guard this, the, the supper like police. Our, our job is the job of someone who warns with words, who warns with the commands of Jesus. Third, there are times when professing Christians because of doubts, because of a strong sense of sin, because of weak faith or a host of other reasons may hesitate to come to the table. Um, if this is you, it is important that you speak to the elders. If you hesitate to come to the Lord's Supper, speak to us. Um, one of the very important roles the elders have been given is to shepherd you by showing you the words of Jesus, to set before you the promises of God, to remind you of the incredible love that Christ has for his people. Christians should not try to measure their holiness at the table. Um, the table is intentionally given for the undeserving. It is, it is not for the deserving. 
And so if you come to the table and you look within for something unworthy, guess what? You will find something. You will find something. When Paul tells us not to partake in an unworthy manner, he is not telling us that only worthy people can receive the supper. Uh, As we saw, he's talking about the way that Christians should approach the table. We shouldn't approach the table unworthily. The table of Christ is for sinners for who have put their trust in Christ and who have recognized, who are recognized as members of the family of God. There are no sinless people here to join this church. You had to declare yourself a sinner. You had to declare your need for Jesus. So we don't search our hearts for, un- for cleanness. That's not what we're doing when we come to the supper. Um, one of my professors from RTS, Guy Waters, says this really wonderfully. He says, the table is not a reward for good behavior. It is a helping hand for believers struggling with doubt, unbelief, and other sins. Struggling with those things. Exiling oneself from the table may be the very worst thing spiritually for a struggling Christian. The table is designed to provide, by the Spirit working through and with the Word, the very thing the struggling individual desperately needs, strengthened faith. I find that so helpful. Um, Part of the Lord's Supper is that it confronts us. Part of the Lord's Supper's power is that we take seriously the call to participate in it by faith. And sometimes we approach the table with great faith. And sometimes we approach the table with trembling faith. Uh, It is not the quantity or the quality of our faith that saves us. It is Christ who saves us. And, and, it, and our, if our faith is as small as a mustard seed, he says, come to the table. Come to the table. Third and finally, Paul tells us that the Lord's Supper is for those who come together. Um, this is very much a meal of the body of Christ. Uh, the church participates in the Lord's Supper together, not separately, right? Notice that the original problem was people wanting to split off, wanting to have their own supper away from the rest of the body. But the Lord's Supper is a corporate meal. It's a meal for the body of Christ. It's not a meal for an individual. Uh, One of the times that I'll just never forget it, uh, I was a student at Grand Canyon University. This is back before it was like a megalopolis with like stadiums and stuff like that. This was back when it was a single small little campus. Um, and I had a class at, at Grand Canyon University on Christian spirituality, and they had our class walk something called a prayer maze. I'd never heard of a prayer maze. I've never seen a prayer maze ever since then, but we had to go through a prayer maze, and I was with my best friend, and um, he's still my best friend. He's a pastor now in the PCA, And as we went through this prayer maze, we came to a little station. They had different things for us to do in each station. One station, they would say, pray for this, pray for this this thing. Uh, Another place, they'd have us read a passage of scripture. Well, this one, they said they had some bread sitting there and they had cups, cups of juice sitting out. And we were told, sit down and have the Lord's Supper right here in this prayer maze. And, you know, this is like, I don't know, 2005, 2006, maybe. Um, and you might think, maybe you think I'm a cranky person. I was so much crankier back then. Uh, and we, we were, we both just stood there awestruck. We thought this is a terrible idea. (laughs) And we knew that the Lord, that God gave the Lord's supper to the church and not to two kids, you know? 
And so we refused. We wouldn't do it. Uh, we knew that whatever they were asking us to do, whatever it was, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. They wanted us to have a snack. Um, and they wanted us to mime the actions of the Lord's Supper, sitting there together, administering it to ourselves. Like, you know, knowing me today, you've heard now this sermon series on the Lord's Supper. You can imagine how, how uh, wild it would be if I actually did it. When, when we raised our complaint with the rest of the class, they treated us like we were a couple of grumpy Scrooges, which we were. Uh, and yet, you know what? It's been 15 years, zero regrets. Actually, it's been more than 15 years. In the first sermon from the series, you know, we noted that God gave the sacraments not to individuals. He gave the sacraments to the church. And so if you're alone and you're doing something that's spiritually beneficial, like reading God's word or praying or singing songs, that actually is a great blessing. God's giving you those things as a means of grace and the spirit will use those things as a means of grace to bless you. But we should not think that we can mime the actions of the Lord's Supper or baptism apart from the church and think that they're the same thing as having the sacraments. It's not. God gave his sacraments to the church. He didn't give it to individuals. Now, I'm not just saying that it's improper. I'm saying what Paul says in this passage today, that's literally not the Lord's Supper. Um, Solitary Lord's Supper is an oxymoron. It's like adult child. Or vegan bacon. That is not bacon. Um, Small crowd. Dull roar. Um, The list goes on. These are all oxymorons. Solitary Lord's Supper goes on that list. It's just an impossibility. Paul says that when people separate and have the Lord's Supper apart from everyone else, they aren't having the Lord's Supper. They're eating something, but they're not having the Lord's Supper. The same goes for this situation. And it's because of this that Paul tells us that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper takes place not when we are alone, not when we are hanging out with a few choice friends, but when the church is together, to use his language. Particularly when we're together to hear the word of God preached. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen and 18 and 20 and 23 and 33 and 34. All of these places, he says, it's to be done when we are together. Acts says that they were given to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. And then it says in another place that Paul's preaching took place on the night when they broke bread. So you have together, they're pairing together the preaching of the word and the breaking of bread. You have the gathering of God's people for public ministry. And that's the occasion when they're, when they're breaking bread together. And we believe firmly this is the teaching of scripture. That's why we're... That's why we were careful near the beginning of the pandemic to make sure and provide you as a congregation with some biblical instruction not to serve yourselves bread and juice at home when we have the Lord's Supper. Um, It was not because we wanted to spoil somebody's experience. It was not because we wanted to take something away that you found helpful. It's because we love you. It is always possible to offend somebody when you send out that sort of message it's, it's possible that you can upset people. You win very few friends with those sort of notices. You win a lot of friends just by letting everybody do everything and not caring what they're doing. It's a lot harder to actually go out, step out, and give those instructions. The only thing that motivated the session of this church giving those instructions was love for you. Love for you. Um, if we didn't love you, we would have been indif- indifferent. We believe it's our duty to give you instruction according to God's word 
and not simply let each person do what is, seems good to them. The Lord's Supper is for the church that's gathered around the preached word. It's for those who are members of Christ's church. It's for those who are trusting in Jesus. It's for those who examine themselves. But it's also very important that as we approach this table, you do so in a way that is worthy. Not as a worthy person, but in a way that is worthy. And that you also know that you will be unworthy in yourself as you approach. In fact, if you approach the table and you think, I am worthy of this meal, you are emphatically not. This is a meal for someone who is hungry, not full. It's a meal for someone who's thirsty, not satisfied. It's for a meal for those who are not well, but who are sick and who know that they're sick. And so my, my hope is this, that by em- emphasizing our responsibility in the supper, I do not want to create the impression that the Lord's Supper is something that we do. We participate and we're not passive like in baptism. And yet the Lord's Supper is something that is done by God to us and for us. It is a gift and a blessing from God to us, not something that we do ourselves. I've already given one quote from Herman Bovink. Might as well end on one. Mm-hmm. Of primary importance in the Lord's Supper is what God does not what we do. The Lord's Supper is above all a gift of God, a benefit of Christ, and a means of communicating his grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your supper. We thank you that you have given us this meaningful meal in which we see Jesus set before us And the promise of redemption given to us. You tell us that unless we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, we have no life in us. And so continue to teach us what it means to receive your flesh and blood. And help us to do so in keeping with your own instructions. And the spirit of love that you've instructed instructed us to in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.